0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Today, the push to get more Indigenous kids into cricket.
2: I think it's the, the simple thing, it's quite easy to pick up a footy and kick it around out on country. And in terms of cricket, you've sort of got to have a, a bit of equipment to be able to make do. I know we're, we're really good at um, you know creating bins as stumps and you know garages as um, auto wiki and all these sort of rules that come into the, the beauty
1: of backyard cricket in Australia. And we head to an urban sanctuary for native bees on top of a car park in urban Wollongong.
3: Uh, But bees are very resourceful. If they need something to cool down, they're happy to grab a bead of sweat off your brow. And that's basically like a bee energy drink, in a way.
1: I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Whadjuk country. Starting today in Western Australia, where families in the far north of the state are still seeking compensation a year after a now defunct insurance company went insolvent. The collapse has led to deceased loved ones being left in morgues for months as families try to come up with the money for their funerals. Maya Cordick has the story. I rang them
3: one day and I just asked them, how much have I got in my funeral plan? And they said, they didn't give me a direct answer, they just said, Oh, you haven't got enough. That's what I get, and she oh, on. No. off. That's all they said to me.
4: Deborah Sebastian is from Beagle Bay in WA's Kimberley region. She's one of thousands of Indigenous Australians who paid premiums to ensure UPLA, formerly known as the Aboriginal Community Benefit Fund. Deborah started making regular payments to the fund in the 90s and says she told her family they wouldn't need to worry about future funeral costs. It wasn't until Deborah made a phone call inquiring about her fund's balance that she realised something was wrong. Little did we
3: know we was being scammed. A lot of people were looking forward to that, and a lot of people died without that money. Their children now are suffering today. Thousands
4: of Aboriginal people have been left in the lurch after the company went into liquidation in March last year, following accusations of misleading and deceptive conduct when it falsely marketed itself as an Aboriginal business.
5: Oh boy,
3: I I didn't know what to do. I was was just stressed. And I said, you know, this has got to stop. This scamming business has to stop. And a lot of people was quoting that.
5: A lot of
4: Veronica Johnson is a financial counsellor for social support organisation Broom Circle, who've been supporting more than 50 of Youpala's former clients in the Kimberley. She says victims deserve compensation and a dignified funeral they signed up for.
6: They're ill, they just really, really need the money and anything could happen at any day. So it is absolutely critical that the government really steps up and takes a little bit of responsibility for their regulatory failures in the past.
4: One Arm Point resident Rosalind Dolby and her mother signed up with UPALA in 2013 and says she felt proud to invest money into what she thought was an Aboriginal company. After UPALA went into liquidation, she lost nearly $7,000. Soon later, Rosalind's mother passed away and her body was left in the morgue for months while she saved for a funeral service. We don't have that kind of money to bury a loved one straight away. So that's why we signed up for the prepaid funeral. So when something, you know, happens, we know we've got the money, we don't have to be looking elsewhere, you know, asking other people or funding other places for some money or funding for her. The Save Sorry Business Coalition, made up of over 125 organisations, are advocating for a resolution for Indigenous Australians impacted by Yoopla's collapse. The Coalition's coordinator, Bettina Cooper, met with politicians in Canberra last week to discuss compensation options. She says the government is responsible for the lack of oversight
1: and for approving the fund as safe. We know that because of this, that over 30,000 people lost over $300 million when they went into collapse on the 11th of March uh, 2022. And because ACBF and UPLA were allowed to stay on centre pay from 2001 to 2017, the government provided that vehicle for financial abuse for almost two decades. She says allowing individuals to take care of their sorry
4: business is the priority and delays to funerals due to financial hardship is a distressing disruption to a significant cultural practice. So we're asking the government to
1: consider if they come up with an enduring resolution that they come up with one with culturally appropriate options based on consultation. And those options include a funeral bond, a funeral savings product and cash depending on the needs of the individual. Australian
4: Securities and Investments Commission, or ASIC, took UPLA to the federal court in October 2020, accusing the company of misleading and deceptive conduct. A judgement in ASIC's court proceedings against UPLA is yet to be handed down. Minister for Indigenous Australians Linda Burney and Assistant Treasurer Stephen Jones were approached
1: for comment. Maya Cordick with that story from Broome in Western Australia.
6: You're listening to ABC Australia Wide.
1: As regional Australia faces a health worker shortage, paramedics say intensive rosters are causing burnout. Staff at some stations in regional South Australia are rostered on call at night after a full day of work. Paramedics say it's made retaining and recruiting staff a challenge. Sophie Lando has this story.
7: In the Riverland towns of Loxton and Barmera, paramedics are tired. The two stations are the last in South Australia operating solely with the on-call model. It means workers are rostered on for four days in a row and are on-call each night, a working load of 96 hours a week straight. Ambulance Employees Association State Coordinator for the Riverland, Russell McQuaid, says the on-call model is fatiguing.
8: Not only can you be dispatched in the middle of your sleep cycle, so you go to bed for the night and you get sent out, that's part of the job, that's what we sign up for, um, but it, inter- it interrupts your sleep, obviously. Having a page of being the thing that wakes you up is, is, gets that adrenaline moving a, a fair bit. Sometimes it's really hard to switch off and you end up in this sort of state of hypervigilance, just waiting for the job to go off and that sort of, almost that set state of anxiety that... Um, very heightened level they feel as though they need to
0: to run with.
7: Mr McQuaid says fatigue doesn't fit into an emergency healthcare setting, being on the road, and it can be damaging to workers' long-term health. The paramedic is currently working at the nearby Wakery station, but previously worked at the Barmer service. He says the on-call model makes it challenging to retain and recruit staff.
8: It causes people to have second thoughts about Um, either full-term or fixed-term positions at our Encore station. Because it is so fatiguing, eventually a large percentage of our workers opt out. They move to another station.
7: Riverland paramedic Russell McQuaid. Across Australia, ambulance services use different rostering systems. But the National Rural Health Alliance says demands on paramedics are increasing due to broader workforce shortages in the health system. Chief Executive Susie Teagan says intensive rosters could be contributing to the loss of new staff in regional Australia.
6: If people are on call for longer periods and they don't have that break to recharge... Well then of course they're finding it difficult and they will burn out and it needs to be addressed by the state government.
7: The Ambulance Employees Association says it had an agreement with the SA Ambulance Service that once the on-call overnight workload grew to a certain level, the station would be converted to an on-shift roster model, meaning staff work 12 hours on, then 12 hours off. It would require the Loxton and Barmura staff to double in size from six paramedics to 12 each. But that's still being discussed between the union, the SA Ambulance Service and the State Government government Health Minister Chris Picton was contacted for comment but the ABC was redirected to the SA Ambulance Service. It says it understands the strong desire of the Ambulance Employees Association to see the rosters converted. General Secretary of the union Leah Watkins says positive talks could lead to change in the future.
6: The amount of progress we've been able to make with the ambulance service and the government in the last year has been
7: phenomenal, so we feel very positive about being able to reach
1: agreement in the coming months. Ambulance Employees Association General Secretary Leah Watkins. Ending that story there from Sophie Landau and Sophie Holder.
9: Oh, and uh, a confident a bit. Yes, he's got him this time. He's is making a habit of this, striking early.
1: Only four Indigenous cricketers, Jason Gillespie included, have represented Australia in test matches in the sport's history. But a new initiative by New South Wales Cricket is hoping to change that. Indigenous New South Wales Breakers player Hannah Darlington says it's a positive step towards increasing Aboriginal representation in the sport. Hamish Cole has this story.
9: Wiradjuri boy, Jakaya Reid had always enjoyed a bit of backyard cricket, but after spending a day with his mates in the nets, learning from some of the best female cricketers in the state, it's a career he wants to pursue.
10: Uh, It was pretty mad, yeah. Like, trying out different stuff and all that.
9: Yeah. Cool, that's mad, yeah. Does that make you want to be a professional cricketer? Um, Probably, yeah. Gumanji woman and New South Wales Breakers batter Arnika Leroyd is one of 10 Indigenous players who played professional cricket in Australia this season. She is hoping to inspire the next generation of First Nations cricketers along with fellow stars Ash Gardner and Scott Boland.
5: I think it's absolutely phenomenal because you, you really can't be what you can't see. So to be able to have the likes of, of Ash and Scotty up there playing for Australia and and I'd like to th- hope that myself and Hannah are doing a pretty similar thing as well. Um, it's pretty exciting. Like These these kids are now being able to see people who have been there, done that a little bit. Um, from shoes, probably pretty similar to their own. So it's really exciting that they, they've now got that and they can now like really physically see these pathways and and it doesn't seem as far out of reach as it may have once.
9: In the 2022 AFL season there were more than 100 Indigenous players while in the NRL there were 62 First Nations players. It dwarfs the number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cricketers, but Camilleroy woman and Australian bowler Hannah Darlington says sessions like this one will help close the gap.
2: Yeah, it's pretty exciting, the fact that they've travelled, you know, some of them said three to two hours um, in the bus this morning to come out and and enjoy some cricket in the the town of Orange that we're going to do the same thing tomorrow and Sunday. So I think, yeah, it's really exciting to see that the Indigenous space is growing in the sport of cricket. I think we've seen other sports sort of leapfrogging the way they go about, um, you know, getting some pretty special talent into their competitions. So, yeah, seeing the amount of kids that are actually loving the sport um, out in these rural areas is pretty exciting. I think it's the the simple thing. It's quite easy to pick up a footy and kick it around out on country. And in, in terms of cricket, you've sort of got to have a, a bit of equipment to be able to make do. I know we're we're really good at um, you know creating bins as stumps and you know garages as um, auto wiki and all these sort of rules that come into the the beauty of backyard cricket in Australia. But as soon as you want to take that next step to becoming a cricketer, it's a bit difficult to to get that access to a, whether it's a cricket kit um, and all that sort of facilities that comes with um, yeah being able to be an AFL player, which is I think is so exciting that they can pick up a footy and, and go out there and do their thing so that's the next step as cricket is making sure this sport is definitely accessible to everyone regardless of the equipment they're able to attain.
9: Another two sessions will be held this year in Newcastle and Sydney with plans already beginning to bring more back to regional New South Wales next year. Anika Leroyd says it's an exciting opportunity to develop the next Indigenous stars.
5: Programs and opportunities such as these is only going to really absolutely benefit these kids and and the opportunities that they'll then be able to get out of this as well. Um, I think it's something that's potentially been lacking in in the past so to know that we're now hopefully making up a little bit for some lost time um, by running programs like these ones is is the absolute goal. I'm absolutely stoked, I I couldn't be more excited to be out here and, and to be seeing these kids face to face. And really feeling like I can show them what cricket's all about and help them a little bit with their cricket education and, and you know learn a bit more about my culture myself while I'm out here.
9: Gamilaroi man Andrew Gordon is part of the state's Aboriginal Cricket Advisory Committee and played representative cricket for the New South Wales Indigenous side in the Imparja Cup. He says cricket has the opportunity to empower young First Nations kids and teach them more about their culture.
10: We're talking about giving Aboriginal kids a voice themselves, so when they get there, they can say where they come from and be proud of their community, be proud of the opportunity they've been presented, and and being able to say that they've been uh, they've been created, that opportunity has been created, but they've also been committed to it. So um, that's that's the biggest thing about today, uh, being able to say, yep, there's an opportunity, there's a pathway. Do you want to be involved? Do you want to commit yourself to it? And we can give them some of the um some of those strategies to do that if we are going to create the future ashley gardeners and scott Bolands of the world they're going to be able to um take for their experience of how they got there but learn from their own experience as well from where they've come from because a big thing a big thing is identity and knowing where you've come from and knowing where you want to go to so and identity is a, a, a passing that you've got to be able to take with you and learn from it as well. So, um, And culturally, that's a, that's a huge thing for Aboriginal cricketers, and I think um, if we're going to get more of those Indigenous cricketers playing at the higher echelon, I think we've got eight or nine playing in the Big Bash and playing international cricket now, um, cricket players, and they all come from multiple states, and they're all learning themselves, their own identity, You know how they got there, and, and being able to learn from their experiences is going to be beneficial to these kids now.
1: Thanks to Hamish Cole for that story. Now, when you think of riding a scooter around the streets of an historic city, you might be tempted to think of an Italian holiday, probably Rome or somewhere. But a trial of putting the scooters in a regional Victorian setting has also been showing promise, with hundreds of thousands of kilometres already travelled in just over a year. Rio Davis reports. Please
9: check the brake and ride carefully.
7: And remember to wear a helmet before your ride.
0: High-tech scooters whirring past Gold Rush-era Victorian buildings have become a common sight on the streets of Ballarat. Rolling down the same path of other states, the Victorian government has been trialling rental scooters in selected locations. City of Ballarat Mayor Des Hudson says the year-long trial has, for the most part, been a success. That
10: long-held view for many residents over a long time, that they must be able to park out the front, so therefore accessibility is not always easy, where for people that are agile enough and can use scooters, absolutely, because they can leave the scooter on the footpath out the front and they've got easy access, so it does present not not only an alternative option in terms of short distance travelling, but also from that parking perspective, it's really handy as well. My only feedback would be a bit more prompt uh, in terms of the collection and gathering by Neuron to go and collect those and bring them back to the original starting place would be something that they could look at to improve the overall system across the community. But generally, I think most people are using the scooters for their intended purpose.
0: Rental scooter company Neuron Mobility has the data to back up their popularity. Neuron regional manager Yusuf Abdullahi says about 63% of Ballarat Riders surveyed said they were choosing the scooter over car for short trips. We've got 250 scooters deployed, covered over 400,000 kilometres at Ballarat, with an average trip length of 2.3 kilometres, and that's slightly longer than the national average of 1.9 kilometres. We see the highest usage amongst the 18 to 34-year-olds who make up roughly 46 percent riders, and that's followed very closely by the 35 to 50-year-old age bracket, and that makes up 42%. The remaining 12% riders over the
10: age of 55, so a very universal widespread appeal.
0: Despite the success of the trial, RMIT University Director of Urban Research, Jago Dodson, says there are some big problems the state government needs to fix, among them laws making high-powered scooters illegal to use for private citizens, but not for people paying to rent them. It doesn't make a lot
6: of sense from a legal point of view to say that a user of a scooter from one of these rental schemes is legal, whereas someone who purchases their own scooter uh, is not legal. However, with the rental schemes, they are maintained and looked after. They operate to particular specifications that are set down by law. So the regulation and governance of those individual scooter vehicles is no doubt much tighter than it would be with private ownership of scooters given that it's relatively easy just to go onto an international online marketplace and buy these e-scooters and I would say a varying degrees of quality depending on where they're being purchased from without too much in the way of quality assurance as to whether they meet Australian standard regulations. It's probably a timely moment to be reviewing what those regulations are and coming up with a viable prescription that can facilitate the uptake of scooters in
0: In a statement, a Department of Transport spokesperson says the trial has been extended by four months to give a decision-making panel more time to develop its recommendations on scooter reforms. With the trial ending next month and the recommendations expected shortly after, Professor Dodson says it's important to keep concerns about scooters' safety in perspective.
6: We shouldn't let scooters be the focus of complaint and opprobrium when other modes, like the automobile,
0: are very problematic already. Thanks. Our trip is ended.
1: Professor Jago Dodson ending that story from Rio Davis in Ballarat.
0: You're listening to Australia Wide. on ABC Radio.
1: And you're with me, Sinead Mangan. Did you know there are more than 2,000 species of native bees in Australia? They're the unsung heroes of the environment, helping pollinate to grow the food we love and the flowers we love to look at. But when you think of beehives, you probably picture them on a farm or backyard somewhere. But can you create homes for them right in the centre of New South Wales' Wollongong CBD? Well, the answer is you can and it's happening right now. And just, Justin Huntsdale went out to check it out.
8: For Connor even it all started when he was working in a Wollongong gin bar. It had a big emphasis on native ingredients. And that sparked an interest in Australian native plants and herbs, which then turned into a love for the bees that pollinate them. So a couple of years ago, he had a bold idea. He'd try and establish a bee sanctuary in one of the most unlikely places, the rooftop of a CBD car park. Wind the clock forward to now, and that's where I'm headed to check it out.
3: So we're on top of the Wollongong shopping centre. We've set up a bit of a garden, beautiful space donated by the mall. We've got a few garden beds, there's more to come, A few plants, and most importantly, we've got a couple of Tetragonula carbonaria beehives. So they're the native bees to this area that also produce honey or sugar bag.
8: This seems like an odd place to set up a a bee sanctuary. a, a car park essentially open to the elements and uh, and quite hot. I assume when the sun's out. What, what's it like to, to set up a bee area in a car park? Is that is that present a whole lot of different challenges for you?
3: Yeah, you're right about the heat. That was definitely a challenge for us, but we're finding ways to help the bees out. So having well established plants to actually offer some shade, give the bees a bit of a rest. Uh, we want to give them some time to dip in the pool essentially Uh, bees like a little bit of water so something that's going to help them cool down Uh, but bees are very resourceful if they need something to cool down they're happy to grab a bead of sweat off your brow and that's basically like a bee energy drink in a way. I'm a bartender by trade and an opportunity came about thanks to Beam Suntory and their program The Blend for a $5,000 grant. Uh, I painstakingly worked on that grant application and it paid off. Uh, I got the entire money and that helped pay for the bees and uh, insurances and a lot of the less fun stuff Uh, and that really goes to show that it's not just a name we are the bee team.
11: Jacob Williams and uh, yeah just a bee helper. Our our intent was to get some uh, garden beds established where, where their hives are, but uh, because we're in the CBD, there's, there's quite a varied uh, number of vegetation. Uh, so we've got the church over, over to the north of us and then we've also got the mall directly south, which has got some good uh, flower beds and planter beds. Uh, but ultimately the, the whole goal of, of this project also is just to boost the biodiversity of the CBD, add some more native plants and some native insects that are desperately needed in, in the Wollongong CBD. And how important are they
8: for pollination though as
11: well? Oh yeah extremely important for for pollination. Uh, So these because they're so small they can get into a lot of the native plants a lot better than a European bee can and that that also means that those plants will fruit more and and flower more and uh, it encourages huge amounts of biodiversity within, within an area so it's because of their size.
8: Yeah and what do you see the end goal being here I mean we've got three beds set up there's two hives it's still a car park. What, uh, what? How do you? What's your vision for this
11: place? Yeah. Look, uh, I'm, I'm an indigenous person, and uh, one of the things that I that I care deeply about is is teaching people to care for country, and so a space like this is perfect for people to come up and and walk around and experience and see what a native garden can do, uh, and what native bees are capable of, and it's all about education and adding to the biodiversity of the region. So we want to provide a space that people can sort of learn about native plants and say oh well actually I like that plant, it's probably going to do better than some European one that I've got in my garden. So if we can start educating the public about the importance of natives, that would be the goal.
8: One of the things I love about it is that both of you guys have jobs outside of this. This is not a a commercial venture at all, it's basically just your donation to society isn't it?
3: We do get a sense of doing something great for the community which is wonderful but of course we've got other jobs that pay our rent. So uh, I'm a bartender and Jacob works with council, uh, but the two of us with our conflicting schedules still find the time to come up here and share a common goal.
8: Jacob, is it more uh, about showing what's what can be done with a space like this? It's almost a bit of a statement, isn't it, to take something that seems so far from agriculture, which is a concrete car park, yeah. Yeah. and turning it into a little urban farm?
11: We're really showcasing that the urban environment shouldn't restrict native vegetation. It should be integrated with it. And we can if we can put it on a car park, you can put it in your in your in your backyard or in your front yard or on the public streets.
1: It's pretty cool. Jacob Williams from the B team in Wollongong, and he was speaking there to our reporter, Justin Huntsdale. And that's Australia Wide for this Wednesday. Remember you can podcast the show whenever you want to. Go to the ABC Listen app and you'll find us there. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you have a lovely evening. Cheerio.